community engagement. Uh, a couple of housekeeping items uh, before we get started. Uh, we are recording this session, so uh, when there is a, a break at the end for Q&A and comments, uh, we do have an audience mic that's wireless that uh, raise your hand and I'll bring it out to you. Uh, just be sure to speak into the microphone so that uh, your words can be immortalized. Uh, the other is, uh, there is a handout. Uh, I've got a few extra copies. I've been trying to hand these out to folks as they come in. Uh, but um, if you didn't get one, uh, sure, we can put them in the back table if you'd like. So how many of you were at the keynote this morning? Just curious. Most everybody, probably. Well, I don't know if you were like like me, but um, Tom's uh, parting words were really inspirational um, to me and really, a, I think, a, a call to action to, um, to not let difficult histories be buried, uh, to have those stories be told. And that's what this session is really all about. And the inspiration more specifically for this session really came from a, a rather informal conversation uh, I had with a member of the Military History Affinity Group here for ASLH about how we could broaden the approach to, uh, to military history sessions uh, offerings through ASLH. And while this is not uh, a military history session per se, it does involve topics uh, that deal with conflicts, uh, the Civil War, the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862, and the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. But it's really a broader story um, about how to tell difficult stories, but more importantly, how to work successfully with communities that have those stories to tell. Um, and probably most importantly is once you've done your project with these communities, how do you maintain relationships with them? How do you have these relationships uh, go past that exhibit or that oral history project or whatever it is that you're doing so that you have a long-lasting relationship with that community that's productive? So uh, we have three case studies today uh, which will provide you, I hope, with some inspiration about how to work with communities, to have them tell these stories, um, but also how to maintain relationships with those communities so that you can continue to help them to tell those stories in perpetuity. So the speakers today um, are Christy Coleman, uh, CEO of the American Civil War Museum, Kate Roberts, who is the senior exhibit developer at the Minnesota Historical Society, and Clement Hanami, who's the art director at the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles. And part of the inspiration for telling this uh, group of stories uh, was they were all prime examples of uh, internal conflicts within this country, um, stories that were very painful, very dark chapters in our history. Uh, in some cases, uh, like the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862, a story which I think the vast majority of the American public is unaware of, um, and a story which had long been buried. Um, 
but they're all stories of um, inspiration, I think, um, when you look at ultimately what came out of these conflicts. Um, so I want to sort of set the stage uh, and begin uh, with, with Christy and um, tell you a little bit more about her. Um, she began her role as a living history interpreter, I think most appropriately enough, uh, at Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. Uh, she was there for about 10 years and uh, had increasing levels of responsibility, finally serving as the director of historic programs. In 1999, she was named president and CEO of the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History here in Detroit. And in 2008, she was named president and CEO of the American Civil War Center at Historic Tredegar in Richmond, Virginia. In 2013, the center merged with the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond and was renamed the American Civil War Museum, which is poised to open a new 28,000-square-foot museum facility at Tredegar, hopefully in 2018. And um, one of the really unique things that uh, I think Tredegar has to offer, now the American Civil War Museum, is uh, a very unique approach to what is now considered um, a well-told story of the Civil War, and that is to tell this conflict from uh, a balanced and inclusive perspective from multiple and often conflicting perspectives. So I think uh, Christie's story uh, of how they interpret the American Civil War is very pertinent to this conversation. Please welcome Christy Coleman. Good afternoon. Um, okay, so, <laughs> yeah, I know a little bit about contested history. And there are uh, pockets of our uh, current and previous um, communities who really struggle with this whole idea. I mean, the reality is Richmond, for decades, quite frankly, for 150 years, um, is a city that really marketed itself for a long time as the capital of the Confederacy, right? And so with that, there's a whole series of things that um, prevented it from having a more inclusive, you know, in, uh, more inclusive story in telling of the Civil War. Um, that was until the little museum that could, which was the predecessor of the Civil War Museum, the historic, you know, the, the, the American Civil War Center at Historic Tredegar, opened to the public in 2006. And in 2006, it was actually the first museum to interpret the war from Union, Confederate, and African-American perspectives under the same roof in the same exhibit. Seems absurd. You know, the park was experimenting with it um, because of a congressional mandate, but outside of that, it really wasn't happening uh, on the scale that, that the center tried to do. So anyway, all of this today, I'm gonna show you a video in just a moment because I'm gonna start from the present and work our way back because the program that I'm about to show you is the culmination of years of civic work, work that began uh, in a little after 2008 when I first arrived in Richmond to take on this role because let me tell you, they didn't quite know what to think when I came to the Civil War Museum. Number one, there aren't that very many women, and there definitely aren't women of color running Civil War Museums. So um, 
as Jack Nicholson said, wait till they get a load of me. Um, so here we go. What you just saw uh, was, let's get that to close. 
Okay, what you just saw was the um, culmination of, again, six years of work. And it was work that needed to be done. And it was all sparked by a statewide initiative called Virginia 150. The state wanted to figure out a way from a tourism perspective to drive attendance and visitation throughout Virginia to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the war, the sesquicentennial. And so a group of people said, well, what does that mean for us in Richmond? Because nobody really wanted to touch it. And when I say nobody wanted to touch it, nobody wanted to touch it. Um, I can tell you that funders, major funders in the community, when you know, we first started going around and saying, we, we're planning sesquicentennial activities, and you know, so we're not, we're, people are sick of the Civil War in Richmond. We're not talking about that. When we went out into the communities, the, uh, I'll just say it, the Confederati um, were like, well, you're, you know, you're just going to you know, give the Yankee perspective, and we don't want to hear it, and we don't want to be a part of it, and you all have become politically correct, yada, yada, yada. And the black folks said, y'all are still denying that slavery had anything to do with the Civil War in this city. This was not going to be easy. Um, but there were and continued to be kind of offline barroom conversations about we need to do something. This is our city, and Richmond was at the heart of this conflict for four years, and we had better figure it out. So let's spread the risk. Who are going to be the partners? That's just a partial list. These are the principal partners that became involved. Of course, the National Park Service, Richmond National Battlefield Parks, um, have 12 battlefield sites around uh, the Richmond area. Um, and in fact, around Richmond, within 100 miles of Richmond, actually, I'm sorry, uh, within 30 miles of Richmond, about 40% uh, of all the casualties of the war were lost within 30 miles of Richmond. So there were stories to tell, and you, you can read them all up here. These are the partners that eventually came together. And again, we said to ourselves, what are we going to do? Who do we need to talk to? How do we make this work? Because people are struggling, and they don't want us to do this, and we recognize that this story has to be told. What are we going to do? So then he said, well, what if we just talk to our communities? So we set up a series of community conversations, not asking people to come to us, but actually going to where they were. I think this is always absolutely critical. You go to the communities that you want to speak to. Richmond has a growing diverse population in terms of its ethnicity and in terms of its religion. And we wanted those folks to not take the attitude is this wasn't our story, we don't have anything to do with this, when in fact the legacies of this war impacts them as Americans, whether they are native born to the country, First Nations people, or whether they just got off their ship, plane, boat, whatever, last month, this impacted them. And so we went into those communities to talk, just to talk, just to provide you know, a little information and to get feedback. And so, and people were letting us in. But what we quickly discovered through these community conversations is that this wasn't just about the Civil War. It was about the lives they were living right now. 
It was about those legacy issues that were preventing them from embracing any kind of conversation, any kind of citywide discussion of the war and its impact. And so these lectures that we were offering, these community conversations, these roundtables, I mean, let me tell you, there was all kinds of things going on. Um, we were bringing in scholars from around the country. We were, it's, again, it was just a variety of things just trying to set the stage. And in the course of that, we also started to discover some new things. We even found a name for ourselves. It was called the future of Richmond's past. And opening it up, and we started giving walking tours. We started letting people know about historical assets of the city that had always been there, but had never been a part of the narrative. We started talking about a major section of the city where, that was burned by the Confederates as the Union forces were advancing on Richmond and the commercial district of the city, the commercial district meaning the area where there were over 40 slave auction houses and the supporting businesses of those auction houses were, and the warehousing of people. That whole section of the city was burned when Richmond fell. And so for the first time, the community was hearing about, and I kid you not, this, this was astonishing, that Richmond was the second largest intrastate commerce for the nation in transporting of African peoples from Richmond to the Deep South. And the community didn't know it and were outraged by it, but they were more than outraged by it. They turned that to action. They turned it to action because they started building coalitions within the work we were doing to save the sites. And that began, again, a series of programs. And again, this started in 2008, 2009. So by 2009, we had a name. By 2009, we had, a, we had partnered with the Virginia Sesquicentennial and did a huge symposium. And when I say huge, 2,500 people showed up for a symposium on the Civil War. Why? Because we changed the narrative. What we did is we said, let's just examine what the world was like before the battle. We're going to pick 1859, and we're going to lay it out. And 2,500 people showed up, and it was the most diverse crowd I have ever seen at anything related to the Civil War. People came out. People started, we, we started doing these walking tours all over the city, and we, it got to the point where we had to do them multiple times because hundreds of people were showing up for things that were only designed for 25 to 50 people because we had been having conversations in the city and we were broadening the narrative of what the war meant. This is the Lumpkins Jail, I mean, um, Lumpkins Jail site. This is one of the most prolific slave uh, places that was actually a parking lot. Virginia Commonwealth University used it as a parking lot. Archaeology work had been done there because we knew what it was. And the work began, and finally commemoration began, and then we ran into another crisis when the mayor decided, wouldn't it be a great idea to build a baseball stadium there? And Again, coalitions of now empowered citizenry, people who had signed up to be a part of Future of Richmond's Past mailing lists got into the thousands, and people, and we were sharing these lists. Let's have these, keep, keep it going, keep it going, keep it going. 
to the point where we had digital, the digital folks got into it and started rebuilding digitally for us to be able to see what our communities actually look like. This is what that Lumpkins jail site looked like. And all of those buildings around it, are, again, are a part of the tr slave trading enterprise that was uh, at the heart of Richmond. So then, all of this work within the community, um, the museum, the American Civil War Center, in fact, along with the Park Service and all of the other partners, we actually took a program that we had been offering previously called Civil War Day. Um, and the brilliant Ed Ayers said, if we're going to do any of this, we need to change the name of all of this. It needs to be the 150th commemoration of Civil War and Emancipation. And that's exactly what we did. And it resonated in ways I cannot even begin to tell you. And the thing is, what you're looking at is the internal, this is the internal marketing that was done just for the metro region because we were still building. We were still getting folks in. And the beautiful thing was people were coming for the Civil War anyway. I mean, it's Richmond. We have 12 battlefields. We have the White House of the Confederacy. We have this. We have that. We have all of these historic assets. So people were coming, but the numbers were beginning to increase. And the citizenry was engaged. And the numbers kept increasing. I'll talk a little bit about economic impact at the end. And then we said, well, how do we sell it to the rest of the world now that we've figured this out? And ironically... The call, we actually used um, a union battle cry. That didn't make some people happy, but it worked. <laughs> On to Richmond. We wanted people to explore it. Um, now, you notice I have not mentioned the Convention and Visitors Bureau uh, or city tourism. They came to the party late because they, they honestly just didn't think it would work. Um, but they did eventually get the site up. You know, we were two years in before they developed a website to help Civil War travelers coming in for the sesquicentennial. And we launched this campaign onto richmond.com. The website's down now because it's, you know, it's over. Um, but you can still find remnants of it online. And it, again, it was working um, in ways that none of us really anticipated to the point that when we got to the final year, the program had expanded even more. That video that I started off with, 10,000 people showed up every day, at least. Those are the ones we could count to the actual headcount programs, not counting the people who were just wandering around. And that may not seem a lot to you, but trust me when I tell you, prior to all of this, to get you know, 250, 300 people to an event could be difficult but we were able to get over 10,000 per day. And again, it was the shift. This is how we shifted the marketing to the outside audience for the final year. Richmond's journey from the end of slavery and civil war to today. And then this. And so from all of this, we learned a few things about how to engage our communities when the history is so contentious. We learned that collaboration is key, even with partners who are difficult. And when I say partners that are difficult, we did engage the Sons of Confederate Veterans and we engaged the United Daughters of the Confederacy. 
they um, opened up their, the Daughters of Confederacy anyway, United Daughters of Confederacy, they actually opened up um, for the first time their national headquarters and their archives to communities and gave tours for the first time ever. The SCV, who originally had planned to not only boycott but to protest these events because, again, slavery and emancipation were at the center of them, and for them it was a false thing. Uh, it was all about states' rights. Um, nonetheless, they, um, uh, some of the camps, they're called camps, each chapter is called a camp, um, learn more than I ever thought I would. Um, the camps are independent, however, and there were several camps that said, no, we're going to be in here with you. You know, you're, you know we, we are the ones who are supposed to be honoring ancestors. We're the ones that are learning about it, and your job is to teach people the broad base. And as they understand the history and its fullness, we're going to trust that you're going to keep us in this. And, and we did. I mean, we certainly did. The Confederacy, you know, is an important part of American history, and it's an important part of when diplomacy failed and when, you know, individual interests um, exceeded the common good, depending on whom you talk to. And that's an important dialogue, especially now. But we learn collaboration is key. Even with partners that make you uncomfortable, you still have to be able to listen because they can tell you things and they can share things with you and they can share their passions with you in ways that may surprise you. And they're not all crazy, right? The second thing is that community engagement is more than the usual suspects. You know, this is something that, you know, we, we often do in the museum field, and that is, you know, we want to do a, a program about black people, so we'll go to the ministers. Or we want to do something about Native Americans, let's go get the chief over there, that person that we know, the one person that we know to talk about Native Americans, but they're not particularly talking about, you know, the Powhatan Federation or the Dakota or whatever. They're, they're, just, they're just Indians, right? We do this, and it's wrong. The real voices in the community are the people themselves, the people who are actually going to use it. So, of course, we asked permission before we engaged, but it was the individuals that came out that we wanted to hear from the most, the everyday folks on the ground that um, provided considerable support to all of this. And share the risk and the reward. Now, the American Civil War Center slash now the American Civil War Museum, because we did do this merger in the midst of all of this, right? Um, was absolutely from the beginning at the table for these discussions. But we certainly didn't do it by ourselves. We certainly did not. We became the home and the symbol of the sesquicentennial for Richmond, but we definitely did not do it alone. We could not have done it without the work of the Library of Virginia. We could not have done it without the extraordinary research coming out of the Virginia Historical Society. We could not have done it without the park and their extraordinary um, staff of interpretives and rangers could not have done any of this without every single partner, including the cultural partner, um, a group called a Legba Folklore Society, because they always kept us in check. 
You know, they'd say, okay, wait a minute. You're getting ready to talk about black folk the way, wrong way. We don't want y'all to do that. And I'd just sit and listen because I knew where she was going. You know, but, you know, this whole diversity inclusion thing, after a while, I get tired of being the black people voice and all the other things I'm expected to be as CEO of this museum. And it was wonderful to have other voices at the table to help bring that to bear as well. Be consistent with your communities. Just because we had that program didn't mean, did not mean we, had to, we stopped talking. We were sending out emails. We were sending out just information links. If there was an interesting story in the Wall, you know, in the Wall Street Journal or a, a American History Journal or something, we were sending that out literally to thousands of people that signed up to be on a part of our mail list. We were just sharing information whenever we could, letting them know when the next community conversation was going to be, letting them know when you know the, the uh, uh, Defenders of Freedom group who were trying to save the Lumpkins jail site when they were holding meetings. We had to be consistent to keep and to build the trust with the community because at the end, the trust is earned. It's one program at a time, each time, every time you keep folks engaged. So where we are now, even as we continue to um, try to put together the, um, uh, this new museum, you know, and new exhibits and really rethinking uh, the whole scope of how we're going to teach this war and share this war and, and the conflict, even now, all that we learn from this process is continuing to inform because we've continually been involved. And, um, and, and so you can do this, and it is hard. It's hard work, but it is extraordinarily rewarding work. So on those days when I am getting that nasty email because, you know, I'm killing Confederate history, or why aren't you talking about this, or, you know, what's wrong with you people being politically correct, or whatever troll wants to do to me today, I can go back and think about what happened in 2015 when folks got it. And that moves us forward, both in terms of the history and the institution, and letting us know that we are, in fact, doing the right thing. Because here's the other thing. I said I'd share some of the stats. State of Virginia, the economic impact on the state was in excess of $237 million. For the city, the economic impact was about $58 million. And that is extraordinary for us. Um, again, on a topic that at the beginning people said, are you nuts? This will never work. Um, and again, at the end of it, we had not only corporate support, um, but we had the community behind us. So on that note, I thank you for your time and attention. and turn it back over to Adam. Thanks, Christy. Um, <clears throat> and I must confess, uh, I had a short stint at the American Civil War Center working with Christy as well, and uh, it was a truly remarkable experience. Um, I'm a long, lifelong student of the Civil War, but this, this effort to try to tell this story um, in an inclusive way from perspectives that are often at odds, um, even today, was very challenging and yet very rewarding. And uh, 
I thought it was rather interesting that when I returned back to Minnesota, to the Minnesota Historical Society, that uh, at that point we were then uh, just about to open uh, our exhibition uh, on the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862, which was equally challenging um, for reasons that Kate Roberts will, will talk a little bit about. Um, Kate is, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the senior exhibit developer at uh, MHS. Uh, she supervises developers and designers who produce exhibits both for the History Center and through the sites that we operate around the state. Uh, in her 25 years at the Historical Society, she's also served as a lead developer, developer on a range of exhibit projects, including Mill City Museum in Minneapolis and Minnesota 150, uh, the people, places, and things that shape our state. And Kate was also the lead developer on uh, this project on the U.S.-Dakota War and uh, was a truly remarkable endeavor that involved uh, conversations with not only uh, Native but non-Native stakeholders as well. Please welcome Kate Roberts. very much, Adam. Thanks, everyone, for being here, especially at this sleepy time of day. So I'm going to be very quick in trying to explain to you what was a, what was a very complex project that we did. During 2011-2012, MNHS, Minnesota Historical Society staff, participated in an initiative that marked the 150th anniversary of the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862, which is easily probably the, the most contentious topic in our state's history. It's, this was an institutional initiative. It was something we needed to do. It was something we wanted to do. It was very complicated, unwieldy to say the very least. And what I'm going to do today is just touch on a few points and kind of zoom down a bit but there's so much more to talk about, and of course, I'm happy to answer questions. Brief description. Again, as Adam mentioned, I was the exhibit developer for the project. The exhibit was one part of this initiative, and the exhibit was a 2,500-square-foot exhibit that um, focused on the war through primary documents and through 3D artifacts. I was on a team with a designer, a researcher, project specialist, of course, an educator, and a collections curator. So just a brief topic overview for those of you who aren't familiar with this. It's an oft-repeated story, broken promises, colonization, and today the Dakota people were eventually expelled from the state and um, today they live in a dozen communities, reserves, and reservations in the United States and Canada, as well as living in Minnesota. Of course, many have come home and continue to come home. The war itself resulted in the incarceration of Dakota people and the largest mass hanging in U.S. history. So there were great losses. I'm sorry, it still gets to me. There were great losses on both sides. European and Dakota people continue to to deal with this legacy. As you can imagine, the tensions ran high. The suspicions from the Dakota people, in particular, were, were very high. Just take a minute and read this. This is our governor speaking after the war. 
expelling, exterminating Sioux or Dakota people from the state. Ramsey was also our founding director. And it gets even better. Um, Ramsey was the state's second governor. The first was Henry Sibley, who led the so-called punitive expeditions that drove Dakota people from the state. Sibley was also one of the founders of MHS, and both the Ramsey and Sibley houses are part of our historic sites network. So you can see how it just kind of layers on itself. We also, we have more than a thousand Dakota artifacts in our collections. And at the start of this project, not all of them were cataloged, not all of them were available for online research. And that's important. I'm gonna come back to that in a minute. Um, we also once had human remains in our collection. And so many rumors and beliefs persisted about the collections. And we realized that very early on in our work with the communities that there was there was misinformation, there were assumptions, there was a lot out there that, um, that we had to answer for, quite frankly. So our first steps, in July of 2011, um, I attended, it was my first public meeting about the exhibit, and it, I, I met with a group of independent scholars who meet regularly to talk about our projects. And at this point, the exhibit is in rough outline and we're looking for objects, artifacts. And then that fall, we had the first of three roundtables at the History Center. The roundtables had no agenda. As Christy mentioned, you show up, you listen. And that was what we came to do. We, we open invitation, whoever would want to join us, whoever wanted to come to the History Center. And at this point, we're still based in the History Center for these roundtable discussions. The conversation revolved around a lot of topics. Most notably, of course, were our collections items, what we had in our collections. Just a few quotes from that time. The first one from a Dakota man, and the second one from a really smart exhibit developer, I know. And I think probably, especially the second one, we've all probably been there. You can't do this exhibit, but you can't not do it. So, the key learnings here is I think that, that there's great value in listening, of course, there's great value in acknowledging, and that there's probably less value in trying to promote reconciliation, in trying to make people happy, in trying to somehow say, oh, no, you're listening, you're listening. You're acknowledging wrongdoings when it's appropriate, and you're taking it slowly. So we were then moved out, listening sessions eventually were held in Dakota communities west of Minnesota and up into Canada. This was invaluable, getting out of the History Center again, as Christy mentioned, being able to go to Dakota communities and just show up and just listen. Um, what's interesting about this too, just a little side mark, these were funded by the Good Family Foundation. David Good is a retired University of Minnesota professor who was in attendance at that very first exhibit meeting that I held. He's not an American Indian scholar, but he came to us and said, what can I do? I have a family foundation. So it, again, we're starting to build some, build a little momentum here. People are starting to say, what can I do? How can I help? How can I participate? Um, the goals of the exhibit are getting a little blurry right now. We're, 
one of the, again, the sticking points are these objects in our collections. And what do we have? How can we find out what we have in the collection? And is it going to be appropriate to exhibit any of this? We also, at this point, renamed our initiative the Truth Recovery Project. Some of you may have heard of Healing Through Remembering. It's a Belfast-based organization. So we modeled our work on that. Interestingly, this is, this is again a voice from one of our um, independent scholars who works with us. There's been plenty of truth out there along, but people have used it select selectively. Well, we know that that's true, but the other thing that we were hearing, yes, perhaps scholars and historians knew this information. The general public, no. And what we are starting to hear over and over again is, I was never taught this in school. This is not a familiar story. Oh, yeah, maybe I know that there was a war. Maybe my great-grandfather mentioned it, but I don't know anything about it. Nobody has talked about it. The other thing that I just want to touch on briefly is I think this quote sort of hints a bit at, at the fatigue and cynicism that can sometimes happen around these projects. Oh, my gosh, here they go again. And Again, it's something we have to face. It's real, but it can't stand in your way. So I mentioned that, um, that, the, that the objects in our collection, many had not been cataloged, weren't available online, and the, many Dakota people assumed that that was intentional on our part, that we were trying to hide something. And in fact, the institution there's a backlog of resources, there's a backlog of cataloging to happen at our institution as there are at many institutions. And this had not been prioritized. So I think there was a watershed moment when the institution said, we'll make this a priority. We put funding behind it, we assigned a full-time staff member to catalog and get these collections online. And this is one of the lasting legacies of the project. It's still available today, it's online, it grows all the time. Our seven council fires site now shows all of the Dakota objects in our collections. So being able to respond to the community, being able to listen and to change course because there was a need on the part of the community was vital, I think, to this project. And of course was beneficial to us too, of course. So meanwhile, back on the exhibit front, um, we're plugging ahead. The object list and storylines are developing. We are now beginning to work with settler descendants too. That's the other thing to remember here is that the loss is not just in the Dakota community, but also the descendants of European settlers. So we're starting to hear many different storylines, many different perspectives. On the recommendation of Dakota people, we made a decision that we would not put Dakota-made objects in the exhibit. So that's a bit of a shift for us in the exhibits department because we had been thinking of these objects as evidence. We were going to reveal the truth or reveal the many truths or get people thinking through the presence of these objects. And Dakota people were saying, please, no. That's painful history. It does not belong in the gallery, no. So it's at this point, too, that I'm sort of saying, please, can't we cancel this exhibit? It's, you know, other initiatives are working so well. We're doing so many good things as an organization. The exhibit is starting to seem almost, is it that important? Really? Well, we went ahead with it. 
we prototyped it, which turned out to be important. Um, not even so much, of course, for the valuable information that we got by leaving prototypes up in our gallery, but just because we were, we were um, telling people that we were interested, we were listening. Look at here it is, we want to know what you think. We changed the name of the exhibit. Again, um, many Dakota people said to us, would you please stop linking our story with the word tragedy over and over and over. So we changed it to the very straightforward U.S.-Dakota War of 1862 instead. One of my favorite quotes. And that, you know, that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? No one is completely happy when you do this kind of work. You know, you, you talk about multiple perspectives, and we had kind of an interesting conversation in an early, earlier session today about how, you know, multiple perspectives, what does that even mean, really? You know, I think about that. It's gotten to be kind of a trope. What are we really looking for? But the bottom line is, you're not going to make people happy, are you? You're going to make sure that people feel listened to, that people can see some sort of truth or some sort of acknowledgement of themselves in an exhibit, and then you go from there. So the exhibit opened. It actually, we had very high attendance, very low attendance from Dakota people, who frankly had been telling us all along, this is not going to be, this is not important to us that you do the, the exhibit. But for the rest of our visitors, it was important. Again, we heard over and over again, we just didn't hear this before. We need to know, we wanna know this. There was a lot in the press, in the general press, about this topic, so that was driving our attendance as well. People were coming to us with the idea that they would learn about this topic that they, again, knew about, but didn't know much about. We had a post-it wall at the end of the exhibit. We talked about what are we going to do with people when, they're, when they leave this, when they have all sorts of things to process, and we talked about all sorts of different things. Ended up with the low-tech and highly successful post-it wall. And we can talk about this a little bit more. This is the word cloud, and you can see, tragic, heartbroken, unfair, and overwhelmingly shame. We can talk about, is that is that an adequate? Do we want people to feel shamed by our exhibits? It's an interesting question. So, outcomes. I'm almost done here. We have new Dakota members on our Indian Advisory Committee, including people who don't live in Minnesota, which is a first for us. We have a new board member who's Dakota. We have altered our interpretation of NAGPRA so that an additional set of objects is protected in addition to what federal rules require. We took dozens of oral histories as part of this project and they're all available online. One of the things that I'm really excited about is our student fellowship and internship program that came from this. We continue to hold round table. We continued long after the, the exhibit ended to hold round table meetings centered on topics that Dakota people wanted to know about. We didn't set the agenda at all. We're doing web digitization projects. We have publications. We continue to go out into the community and do um, digitization projects with family photos. That was, a, again, a need that, that people told us about. That come in, 
with our scanner, scan people's photos, give them back the flash drive with those photos. A simple thing, but it gets us out in communities and it keeps us connected. And that's fun. And finally, and I'll leave it here because I'm, I'm out of time, but just to bring it full circle, next year we will have an exhibit opening from our new Native American Artist in Residence program. This again is a direct relation to this. We had a program manager from a local foundation come to one of our listening events, get very interested in our program, say, give us some proposals. So the one that they picked is a program that gets American Indian artists into our collections, studying the collections, and then making objects based on their study, which we acquire and we will exhibit. And then each of them is also teaching these sometimes lost arts Etc. So we have five artists that we have funded so far. There's another round coming next, and this will be an exhibit next year. So I'm going to leave it at that. So thank you very much. Thanks, Kate. And there's some wonderful examples there, I think, of ways in which institutions can maintain strong relationships with communities. Uh, our final speaker is Clement Hanami. Uh, Clement serves, as I mentioned before, as art director of the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles. And he has designed, curated, or installed every major exhibition there uh, since its inception in 1985. He is a prominent Southern California multimedia artist whose work has been exhibited at numerous galleries and organizations, including the Japanese American Cultural and Community Center and the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. His work can currently be viewed online at Art Intersections, Smithsonian Asian Latino Pop-Up Museum. And uh, Clement will talk about some of the groundbreaking work that his institution has done to talk about another very dark chapter in our history, and that is the internment of nearly 120,000 Japanese Americans during World War II. Please welcome Clement Hanami. We're just trying to get it on the screen right now. Hello. Um, thank you, Adam. Um, and I mean, I'm humbled to be speaking with these great people. I mean, I think everyone's work here is resonates with the work that we do. I, every lot of things that they're saying, I, I feel and I know. Um, and so I, appreci I can appreciate all of their efforts. Okay, so my name's Clement, and like Adam said, I'm from Los Angeles. I'm a native-born Angelino, 
and I've actually worked at the museum for 24 years. Um, we opened to the public in 1992. Um, in 1985 was our official incorporation. We were founded by uh, Japanese-American businessmen and veterans who wanted to ensure that the Japanese-American history was not lost, um, starting with the first-generation Japanese-Americans. Um, the mission of the Japanese-American National Museum is to, is to promote understanding and appreciation of America's ethnic and cultural diversity by sharing the Japanese-American experience. So we tell a lot of stories. Um, Japanese-Americans first came here in 1885. Um, as laborers, as many other people did. Um, so we tell stories of immigration, of agriculture. Um, now we also include issues of mixed race, which is a big thing, um, and even pop culture, because we know that numbers are necessary to, to keep our, um, our, our institution stable or, or um, viable. But ultimately, the work that we do is really an American story. Um, so, like many of the other people had mentioned, we are an institution of the first-person voice. Um, our, our, our original scholar, Jim Hirabayashi, who has since passed away, was the founder of the Ethnic Studies Department at San Francisco State University, which is one of the first ethnic studies uh, departments in the entire nation. Um, and he really put that into our heads, that it was important that the people who experienced this ex uh, story tell the story. And so what that led us to is a, a program that we call the National Partnership Project. And what we did is we picked locations where we wanted to tell stories. And we went to those locations. And we looked at the people of those communities and we asked them for their stories and histories. But we also began to designate a lot of these people to participate in the actual creation of these stories. In Oregon, we had like a landscape architect who was an art exhibition designer. In New York, it was a graphic designer. In Kona, it was a coffee farmer <laughs> who was a very creative artist. But we engaged the actual people because we, under we, we felt that the aesthetic of that experience would resonate best when it came from the people of that community. Same with the history, same with the, the, the oral histories, always trying to utilize the staff or, or the individuals there to work with our staff to give them the sort of the, the tools and the mechanics, but really engage them because their relationship with these people were much, were, were, were true and authentic. Um, and like other people have said, understand that really the, the emphasis of all of this is to engage in a process. That sort of became our mantra, that the only way anything was gonna happen is if we just started to get the ball rolling and knowing that Wherever, wherever you go, there's always going to be that one person or that one group that's not always happy with everything, but you have to engage in a process. Uh -oh. um, and so, that <laughs> I hope they can, yeah. Um, and through that process, we understood that what happens is you do create these unique relationships that, that go beyond um, the story. It, it creates lifelong relationships. It helps you with development. It helps you with finding new partners and new friends that will all, in the end, support the museum. So, like Adam mentioned, the, the story of America's concentration camps is, a, is just one more aspect of this process that the museum had gone through. And 
for us, uh, because the timing of this, many of the first generation had already passed away. So of the 120,000 people that were incarcerated during World War II, two-thirds of them were American-born citizens. And we call them the Nisei, or the second generation. Um, and so this is a quote from Karen Ishizuka, who was the brilliant curator of the show. She was amazing. Um, and it talks a little bit about this whole idea of like, one, the first generation Japanese Americans who were immigrants never really wanted to talk about this because it was, again, a very shameful period in their lives. They were singled out as enemy aliens and, or as aliens, and it's just something that they didn't want to keep talking about after it happened. So there was this shame that was um, sort of ingrained in this second generation. Okay, so I think these are some of the challenges that we had to overcome in, in telling the story. Um, this whole idea of how do you get these people who at their core don't really want to talk about this because it's something that they've, you know, they, they, they talk about it in passing, but it's not anything that they really wanted to get deep into. Um, understanding that there were two audiences here, that one is we knew we had to engage these people because we felt like they were the people that were gonna help us um, make this exhibition work and make this story resonate for the public. And the, and the other audience is obviously the people who weren't familiar with this whole camp experience. Um, and then transforming people's understanding of the, of the terminology that was being utilized at that time. Um, so this bottom sentence has an interesting line that's from um, the exclusion orders, which were the actual orders that told people that they had two weeks to liquidate all their belongings and move out. Um, and there's an interesting word here. One is um, all Japanese persons, both alien and non-alien. So we know aliens were first-generation Japanese immigrants, but does anybody know what non-alien meant? Citizens. <laughs> Citizens. So again, another example of sort of the terminology, the euphemisms that were used in the actual government documents um, on how they would classify these people and put them in camp. A big controversy was actually using the word America's concentration camps. And um, we had a lot of blow, blowback, I guess is the word, or there was a lot of controversy because people, there was a large group of people that um, equated this term with um, Nazi Germany. And we agree, I think there is a lot of, um, in, in history books and stuff, where the wording is used. But at the same time, we understood that it was commonly used by the leaders in government, that this was technically a concentration camp. And I think what we wanted to do was make sure that um, one, we talked about euphemisms and the terminology and how internment, um, internees, relocation centers, assembly centers were all really government euphemisms for concentration camps. Inmates, incarcerees, being incarcerated because they lost all their belongings and they could only, they could only take with them two bags, only what they could carry and they were sent to these, ca these camps in far-off places, including Heart Mountain, Wyoming, and Jerome, Arkansas. Um, so, again, that, that was really important for us. The other thing is we wanted to make sure that 
those inmates or those former inmates understood that we wanted to make sure that their experiences were not minimized. We wanted to, so we pushed forward with the term America's concentration camps. And what we had to do is we had to really work with a lot of the communities who had concerns about this. Um, a lot of them were the Jewish communities. Um, and the, probably the, the biggest moment was when we actually traveled this show to Ellis Island. And Ellis Island felt like we might want to think about the title because we're right by lower Manhattan. <laughs> but our executive director, Irene Hirano and Karen Ishizuka and a lot of our board had town hall meetings with a lot of the leadership in New York. And I would say this very similar thing. They didn't always agree, but they understood the need to tell the story from our perspective. So in a way, it's the process of getting the, coming to an agreement and an understanding of why you're doing what you're doing. So we created this exhibition. Um, you know, this was like our, probably our second exhibition at the time. I mean, our second exhibition in our facility. And it was a pretty big exhibition. And we were lucky enough to be able to work with Ralph Applebaum as a designer. And he kind of understood a lot of our challenges. And so what we wanted to do was create different um, activities that allowed for um, former inmates to participate in this exhibition. Um, going back to this ideal of something that they were not necessarily proud of or wanted to talk about. So one were these, we created these camp albums and where we asked people to write their, their personal information, stories from camp and stuff like that, and actually participate, become part of this exhibition. Um, we also took Polaroids of them so that you could see what they look like today. One story that we, I remember is um, a, a, a volunteer hearing this lady squeal and the, the volunteer asked, are you okay? And she says, oh, I found an old boyfriend of mine <laughs> from camp. And she, but then she said, but he's so old now. <laughs> so, but but it, kind of, it kind of made this experience much more personal and friendly for her. And, and immediately she was no longer intimidated by this, this ideal of the camp, pro, of, of, of sharing this story or humanizing it. It actually became something that made her sparked her memory and wanted her to, to participate more. Another activity we had was um, where people would actually, if they knew their block and their barrack, that they would take the barrack and place it onto the actual map. And this was also another great activity because it allowed people to find other people. Like when they put their barrack and there was another barrack there, they would think, oh, I remember that. There was a man there and that was so-and-so. And then they would go back to the books and look for the books and try to find that person and go, oh, he's, this, he's still alive. And so, and it was just a way, and then we had like a lost and found board where people could pick, pin their stories on there and try to connect with people from a long time ago. It was just a really great way of uh, just humanizing the story. Um, another thing we, we realized was the human element was so important in this exhibition. So a lot of our docents who, again, they never knew when they started to be docents that they were going to be having, that they were going to have to tell the story of America's concentration camps. They were there thinking they were going to tell the story of their parents, the first generation. So we really are appreciative of them becoming our spokespeople for this exhibition. One of the things that we worked with them together was to create these name tags. Um, and it 
takes pictures from them back in the day, puts their camp, and they became ambassadors for this exhibition. Um, and I think it was a really wonderful thing. Many of them still wear these name tags because it, it, it's a reminder of, of the whole experience of um, engaging in this topic that at one point was something they would never talk about. But now it's something that they're actually proud of because it's connection to American history, uh, it, the issues of social justice and civil rights. So. so I think um, st stories from camp are all varied. Some were very sad um, and, and not really expressed very well, but others are fun and happy. A lot of these guys were younger when they were in camp, so they do express some of those things that were happy knowing that it was their parents who really suffered the most because they had lost so much. Um, but I think the most successful thing is that this really became a tool for people to break down those barriers and make the camp experience um, something that everyone felt comfortable talking about, not just our docents, but all the visitors who came. Um, and those are just some of the statistics that we had. There were 2,276 models placed, and there were 3,496 Polaroids, um, and we still have those, those books. Um, and I think from that moment on, our, our docent core actually grew a little because there were a lot of people who, as a result of this experience, saw the benefit of a Japanese-American National Museum, not just as a Japanese-American National Museum, but as a as a museum, as an American museum that can really talk about issues of civil rights and social justice. So where does that take us now? So we continually work on different exhibitions about the, the, the um, incarceration during World War II. Next year marks the 75th anniversary of e Executive Order 9066. So one of the exhibitions that I'm working on is called Instructions to All Persons. And because, again, a lot of the Nisei are passing away, we do, they're still f quite a bit, but, but they are passing away at an alarming rate because they're in their late 80s now. Um, we're creating an exhibition based on a lot of the first-hand documents that the museum has and creating an inquiry-based exhibition where we have a lot of oral histories from them, and then we tell like sort of their responses to these instructions, like this is, you know, you have to move in two weeks, what are you gonna do? Um, and try to engage young people in these questions and these dilemmas that other people had to do, and see how, they're, how, how they would respond today. Um, and one of the things that we do on a regular basis, in addition to this, is um, we have a day of remembrance. And for the past five years, a lot of our Day of Remembrance have been in conjunction with the ADL or um, a lot of different Islamic groups because we feel like a lot of their troubles relate very much to the same, you know, looking like the enemy. Once anything happens, you look like the enemy. So there's this sense of solidarity in what we do with those same groups that have um, similar types of uh, experiences today. Um, and then this is just a final text panel from, from, I mean, a lot of these are quotes, but for me, it's, again, I, I just have to be very, I'm very grateful for the second generation Japanese Americans who working together with staff and the museum 
really became the face of this experience and made it such a, um, a human, uh, such an American story that, you know, young kids would come in and they'd have these docents that were these older, white-haired Japanese-Americans, but they were the first-person experience. And they were just, you know, they were, what they were conveying was, I'm just American, just like you. And these are, these are the stories of, you know, the troubles that we had gone through during World War II. But in spite of that, we are still able, because of, because of redress, which was the acknowledgement by the U.S. government of the wrongdoing, was that that still is what makes America the greatest country in the world, is that it can, it can face up to those mistakes and, and try in their best effort to, to correct those wrongdoings. So that's it. Thank you. Thanks, Clement. So we have a, a few minutes left, um, and I wanted to open it up to questions, but also um, to get feedback, because I know we're not the only ones who have done this, uh, and we want to be able to hear from you about your experiences, about what has worked, and how you've sustained those kinds of relationships in your community. So I do have a wireless mic, uh, which I would request that uh, you use if you have a question or a comment. Questions or comments? I just have a, I have a question about the Dakota War Exhibit <clears throat> from Washington State. We have 29 federally recognized tribes. Um, I'm wondering whether in that story, if there are other tribes that were involved and whether your outreach included them. You know, there's complexity about focusing in on wrongs to one tribe in particular when you have multiple tribes in the area and whether their feedback was kind of part of the process as well. We do have several tribes in Minnesota this war directly affected the Dakota. So that's why we focus there. But we have institutional initiatives with other tribes in Minnesota as well. So yes, the Ojibwe are, are in Minnesota. Their ancestral homelands are there. And the Ho-Chunk, who also now pre primarily live in Wisconsin. But the short answer is we do initiatives with all of our tribes, but for this project, we were focusing on Dakota. Does that answer your question? I'm just wondering whether there was any f negative feedback from the other tribes on focusing in on one in particular. I have to say very little. There was an understanding that this is untold history and that it was time to talk about Dakota history. Okay. Honestly, that was, you know, I think the other tribes were pretty much saying this is the most contentious event You've talked about our history in many other ways. This is time. Uh, all three of you mentioned momentum being a big part of getting these programs started. So where did you kind of decide to get that going? I mean, you talked about roundtables. How did you kind of figure out where you were going to start having those at?
Um, the simple answer is initially what we did is we, uh, for, for the sesquicentennial initiative, um, we just sent out a, a call and partnered with the newspaper and said, this is what we're going to do. If you're interested, come on out. I mean, we put out an ad is how we, we did it. Um, each of the partner institutions also sent out uh, email blasts to their membership to get the conversation going. And what happened subsequently to that is that more and more people were sort of sharing the email, and they were encouraged to share the email with others that they thought might be, you know, might have interest. That's how we did it. I mean, I, I could add that um, for America's concentration camps, the museum did do a lot of um, national conferences where we brought people around and. A lot of the camps actually have reunion groups, so it's you, you kind of go to their reunions to meet up with them. But it does take a, it, it's it's a lot of for uh, for our community. It seems like it's better for us to go there where they are versus having them come to us. Uh, this question is this question is uh, for anyone, but I'm uh, referencing specifically uh, the example given during the uh, uh, the Minnesota exhibition on which you referenced uh, the decision to not display Dakota artifacts um, at the behest of the Dakota community. And it made me wonder, uh, did any of you ever come upon a situation where, despite the request of a particular community you were trying to reach out to, did you ever have to make a tough decision to uh, go against a request for the sake of uh, the broader historical discourse? Uh, you know, were there any difficult choices that had to be made in that regard? I'll just say really briefly, yes. I, I mean, that goes back to what, what our, our one very savvy um, person mentioned. You're not going to make anybody happy, so yes. And in the interpretation, there are all sorts of details that people quibbled with and continued throughout the run of the exhibit to say, you got that wrong, you didn't tell the right story. You did. So, yes. We made a lot of tough decisions, and you just have to live with that. I know that in the Holocaust uh, education community, there's a lot of emphasis these days on bystanders. I was particularly interested in Clement's case, whether there had been any attempt to try to interview people who were enablers of what happened in the camps and talk to, the, to, to document some of what was happening in the larger society that allowed that uh, event to happen. That, that's an interesting question. I think we do have some research. I know there has been a lot of documentation of people like Dylan Meyer and stuff like that. Um, but I don't know if there was like a concerted effort as far as putting anything like that into the exhibition itself. Um, but really more focused on the first-person voice of the, that Japanese-American community. We do have a lot of oral histories of other people, though, like um, Ralph Lazo and Miss Breed, who were um, individuals who were not Japanese-Americans. But Miss Breed was a librarian in San Diego who um, wrote letter, tons of letters to all of her students in camp, um, and she wanted them to send letters back to her. And then she sent books to them, just trying to keep their lives as normal as possible.
But it's those kind of stories, I think, more so than sort of the government officials and stuff like that that we focused on. One more question before we close. Well, I think the, one of the primary takeaway messages I'd like to emphasize from this is um, patience. Uh, this is not something that happens easily or quickly. Uh, I think in all the case studies, um, these were examples where uh, those institutions had to be very diligent, um, open, uh, inclusive, um, and honest. Uh, honest about letting those conversations evolve however they were going to, um, and to be transparent about it. And all of that takes time and patience. So um, those are our, our final parting words, I think. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>